Do you need help with your journey following Jesus? Has your Bible reading brought up some interesting questions? Um, I, I need a prayer request. Is I've heard um, pastors talk about you can't get to heaven just with good deeds. I was just wondering what you guys think. Is, the, is there a correlation between the seventh trumpet and Revelations as the last trumpet, or is he talking about some other trumpet? Finally, a place to get answers. We're ready to take your prayer request and answer your Bible questions. Call in at 303-690-3000. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. This is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible, or if there are things going on in your life that you'd like to talk about or receive prayer for, we'd love to talk with you, answer those questions, and pray for you. Give us a call or text us. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, 720-336-0897. We want to welcome those of you listening in Colorado and Wyoming on Grace FM. I also want to say hello to everybody who's listening on the East Coast on Hope FM in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, and also those who are listening on Truth FM in Tennessee and parts of North Carolina and Kentucky. Welcome to the program, wherever you're tuning in from today. We're so glad that you have joined us, and we're so glad to see how God is growing the reach of this program as we have these uh, syndicated markets and stations. And So however you're listening today, we want to remind you that those listening on the East Coast and in the area around Tennessee, you're hearing the show on a one-week delay. So you're hearing the show a week later than it airs live. But what we'd love for you to do is listen to the program and give us a call still. And then you'll have the unique opportunity. You get to tune in a week later and you get to listen to yourself on the radio. We also want to greet everybody who is listening online on our uh, web app, or sorry, our mobile app or our website. So you can get the mobile app if you uh, go in your smartphone and go to the App Store or to Google Play uh, App Store there. You can just type in Grace FM and the app will come right up. Put that on your phone and then you can listen to us on your phone or tablet anywhere in the world over the internet and you can always go wherever you are in the world just to our to your browser on, on your laptop, tablet, phone and you can just type in gracefm.com and it'll pull this right up and then you just click uh, listen live and you'll be able to listen to this program or any other one live wherever you are in the world and we, we actually do have so many listeners who call in we get calls from places that are outside of our listening range which is always great looks like uh, I'm being told that we have a lot of listeners in Utah so if you are listening uh, in Utah in some way, some way well, we'd love to hear it looks like uh, Southwest Utah loves uh, Grace FM and they love to listen online uh, that's one of the we get a ton of listeners from there, apparently. So Cedar City and down into St. George. We're glad you're tuning in. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. And wherever you're calling, wherever else you're listening from today, welcome. We're so glad that you've tuned in today. Again, this is the show where you can uh, call in or text us with your questions about the Bible or things going on in your life. If you have prayer requests, we'd love to talk with you, pray for you, answer those questions, hopefully few words about myself. Uh, my name is Pastor Nick Cady. I am the pastor of Whitefields Community Church, which is located in Longmont, Colorado. And I am your host every Monday here on Calvary Live. And every now and then I fill in on other days as well. Um, and my church is located in Longmont, Colorado. And 
Uh, it's called Whitefields Community Church. If you're in Longmont or in the surrounding area, any of the surrounding towns, whether it's in uh, Lyons or Berthoud, if you're in Mead, Frederick, Firestone, Dakono, that Carbon Valley area, or down into Erie and Lafayette, uh, North Boulder, or if you're in Longmont proper, we'd love to have you uh, come and visit us and worship with us sometime. I got told one time that I forgot to mention Niwot. So all you Niwaters listening to the show, we'd love to have you join us as well. So um, yeah, if you're in or around Longmont, give us a visit. Check us out online first at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. Or check us out on social media. We're on all the major social media networks and channels. So check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We're on there, Whitefields Community Church. And you can find us again, whitefieldschurch.com. Or if you live in the local area, we'd love to have you come and visit with us and worship with us. God's doing some really good things at our church, and it's pretty exciting. So right now on Sunday mornings, we meet at Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., by the way. And right now we are finishing up a series in which we've been... Um, which we've been studying the prophets. So our series has been called Remember the Prophets. And that idea for the series comes from James chapter 5, verse 10, where James encourages us to remember the prophets. And he says, remember them and look to them as examples for how to live lives of faith uh, in the face of uh, discouragement and hardship and those kinds of things. And so what James is telling us there is that the prophets are, you know, they, they not only prophesied the words that they wrote that, that are also for our benefit and for the benefit of their hearers at that time, but their lives are, are some of the greatest messages they ever preached were the way that they lived. It reminds me of Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 20 when he is leaving Ephesus and probably never going to see those people he pastored there for three years. He's probably never going to see them again. And when he says goodbye to them, the thing that he reminds them of, he says, hey, I want you to remember the way that I lived among you for all the time that I was with you. In other words, the, the number one thing that Paul says isn't, hey, don't forget all the stuff I taught you. He does say that, actually. But before he says that, he says, I want you to remember first and foremost the way that I lived among you. For Paul, that was really his greatest sermon that he ever preached was the life that he lived. And that was the thing that he wanted to stick with these people who he pastored and who he taught and led. And I think there's a similar thing here with what James is saying about the prophets. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, in that hall of faith, you know, he goes through this list of all these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, these people who lived by faith. And then he gets down to the bottom and he says, time does not permit me to go on. But if I could, then I would tell you about Barak and Samson. And then he says, and the prophets. And so what we're doing in this series, and it's been really good, this actually, this coming Sunday is our last uh, sermon in this series. It's been eight weeks long, so this will be week eight, and then we're going to be getting a new series in the book of James. But uh, it's been a really great eight weeks. In fact, um, even I, I know that our podcast stats have been blowing up just because, uh, you know, for one, on one hand, this is an area of the Bible that a lot of people are not completely familiar with. And, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is that sometimes it can be really hard to really get the context of the books if you're just reading straight through them. Another thing that makes it a little bit hard is that the prophetic books are organized differently than some of the other books in the Bible. And so when we come to the prophetic books, they're not organized chronologically in the Bible, but they're organized according to size and according to theme. And so it's you kind of need uh, a little bit of help and guidance as you're going through there. Uh, or, you you know, you can take the time and you can match up the prophets with the kings in uh, 
first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. In our series, I, I think that's been one of the things that's been really helpful for people is kind of matching up the prophets with the, the time periods that they lived in. And then really, we're looking at their lives specifically, but also at their messages. So we really want to look at how the way that they lived is an example for us. And so this past Sunday, we looked at Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, we saw Ezekiel really as a beacon of hope uh, for the nation. But when you look at Ezekiel, what you see is that he was a hurting person who ministered to other hurting people. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, a man who uh, had lost a lot of things. He lost his dream, right? His job, uh, he was trained to be a priest, but he would never get the opportunity to serve in the temple because he was in exile in Babylon. Another one is that he lost his home, obviously, just like all the others. He, other exiles, he was taken captive by the Babylonians, forced to uh, walk 1,670 miles from his home to Babylon. And he was cut off from everything he knew. And finally, Ezekiel is a man who lost his wife. His wife died, actually. And he was called to minister to other people. And, you know, one of the things that I was inspired by as I was preparing for this teaching on uh, Ezekiel, I saw a video um, online by Pastor John Corson. And some of you may be familiar with that name. If you're not, uh, I would really encourage you, go check him out online because he has just uh, ministered so much to me and so many others over the years. Um, and I learned so much from him. But uh, John Corson is uh, an interesting man because, you know, he's been pastoring in Southern Oregon for uh, many years, several decades. And early on in his ministry, as a young man, he had a, a wife and two kids, and his wife died in a car accident. And then, uh, not many years later, uh, his daughter died in a car accident right in front of their church. And then just a few weeks ago, his son also died. And so his son died of a, um, I believe it was a brain tumor. But, uh, you know, he posted something about it online where he was teaching his church, and they took a video of it and posted it online. And what he was saying is, you know, there's a very popular book that came out several years ago, a bestseller uh, in the Christian genre called uh, Your Best Life Now. And John was saying, you know, I have to be honest with you. If this is, if you believe that your best life is going to be the one that you have here and now, he says, I feel sorry for you and, uh, and I'm concerned about you. And really what he said is that the Bible offers us something much better and much bigger than just having your best life now. It offers us, uh, it says that your best life is the one which is to come, which is offered to you through the gospel uh, because of Jesus. And I thought that was such a precious thing that he said, and it's something that's true in his life. I mean, this is something he's living out and going through. And so as we study Ezekiel, you know, that was really at the forefront of my mind. Here's Ezekiel, a man who's lost his wife. He's lost uh, his home. He's lost his dream. And he's ministering to people who... Uh, this is not their best life, what they're experiencing. In fact, uh, what he is doing is uh, he's speaking to people for whom their lives are really never going to get better, right? Because the exile lasted for 70 years. Ezekiel dies about halfway through it. And probably most of the people he's ministering to in that case, uh, they were people who were in dire circumstances and their circumstances weren't going to get better. And so his message to them wasn't, Hey, you know, follow God and and then God is going to, you know, restore your fortunes and your your circumstances are going to improve. In fact, he's ministering to a people and he has to have a much bigger and a much better message for that. And that's the good news of the gospel is that we have a much better message, a message that says, hey, you know what, if we hope in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. But the good news is that we don't hope in this life only. We have hope for something beyond this, something uh, better than this. And so, um, you know, that's Ezekiel's message. And I thought it was just so perfect and poignant, you know. Here's a hurting man ministering to hurting people. And the question becomes, you know, where do we find the strength to keep going in the midst of difficult circumstances? Uh, where do we keep, where do we find the strength to fulfill God's purpose and calling for our lives in the midst of difficult circumstances? Ezekiel answers those questions and he shows us that, number one, it comes from getting a vision of God's glory. That's the first thing that happened with Ezekiel. And then a second thing that happens that I, I found really interesting, I guess I hadn't noticed it before, um, and, and this is that God tells Ezekiel what's at stake. In chapters 2 and chapter 3 particularly, but then he repeats it in chapter 33. Uh, God tells Ezekiel, he says, hey, look, here's what's at stake uh, when it comes to this message I've called you to preach. He says, I want you to preach it. And if, if people hear this message of repentance and this offer of, of restoration and this offer of hope and uh, mercy from God, and, and they ignore that message, they just are like, you know what, we don't care and we're not going to repent. We're just going to keep going. Uh, God tells them, hey, look, if you preach that message to them and they don't care and they ignore you, well, then that is going to be between them and me. But then he says this, but here's the deal, Ezekiel. If you uh, fail to preach this message to them, then here's, here's what, what's going to happen. If they die in their sins and you didn't preach this message to them, then I'm going to hold their blood on your hands. In other words, I'm going to hold you accountable for not having preached to them this message and them having perished in their sins. And I thought, man, that is such an important and interesting message for us today. Uh, I just heard recently, um, I think it was last week, a uh, poll was published online that showed that 50% um, of the younger generation, my own generation, uh, people 35 years and younger, um, in the United States believe that it is um, wrong to evangelize people. In other words, we should say, you should say, like if you're a Christian, these people are saying, you should just do your thing and let other people do their thing. Like don't try and, uh, you know, impose your beliefs on other people. Just, you know, you be a Christian and, but, you know, don't try to go around trying to convert everybody. 50% of people polled. Now, I don't know if that represents the whole population or not or, or where their, uh, you know, study came from. But 50% in this poll said, you know, they believed that it was wrong to evangelize. And I, and I just compare that with what it says in Ezekiel. And I think, well, no way. I mean, to, to not share our faith. That'd be like if you knew the cure for cancer and you saw someone with cancer, but you thought you'd keep it to yourself because you didn't want to make them feel awkward. Um, and, and I think, you know, that that's so antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is that, you know, there Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. In the book of Acts, the apostles said that they couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. Um, he, they said there is only one name that is given under heaven by which people must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And I came across this interview. It's, it's several years old now, and maybe some of you have uh, been familiar with it. But it was with Penn Jillette. If you've ever heard of Penn Jillette, uh, he is half of the performing group Penn and & Teller. And they've you know, been on um, in Vegas for a long time, 
had a big show and they, they've been on TV specials off and on. And Penn and Teller, they do like magic and comedy. Um, but Penn Gillette, in his own time, he's a very outspoken and adamant atheist. And so what I ran across was, uh, I believe it was a radio interview, some kind of interview, um, and I heard the audio of it. But um, in this interview, Penn Gillette and this interviewer were talking about this idea of um, Christians proselytizing and sharing their faith. And he said something which surprised the interviewer and which I thought was actually very interesting. Here's what Penn Gillette said. He said, I don't, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. And the interviewer was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, how could you respect somebody who believes that there's a real heaven and there's a real hell and there's such a thing as eternal life, but they feel that it's uh, in order to avoid social awkwardness, they're just going to keep that to themselves, even if it means that other people perish. And he said, well, you know, if you really believe that to be true, well, then you owe it to people to try to proselytize them. And he said, I don't mind at all when people try to proselytize me. It just tells me they actually believe what they say they believe. And I thought that was so interesting, coming from a person uh, who is not a Christian, but he's saying, hey, you know, if if you really believe these things are true, then you should be proselytizing. Like, And he, he said a phrase, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to not try to convert them? if you really believe that there is a heaven and a hell. I thought that was interesting because I don't think that Christians who generally keep their faith to themselves actually hate people. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but perhaps we do need to be challenged by this to say, hey, if you really believe these things are true, well, then here's here's the logical conclusion of that. And, and I think that we need to be um, really challenged with that as Christians today. And finally, the, the last thing about Ezekiel is that he has this incredible vision of the future and the restoration that is to come. Uh, and I'll talk about that for a second, but I want to remind you of the call-in number and the text-in number so that you guys can call. We've had all open lines this whole time. We've got a few text messages. We'll go to those in just a minute. Um, but I'd love to have some calls. I know today's President's Day, and many of you are not at work or you're not picking up your kids from school. Um, but we'd love to hear from you. The number to call is 303-690-3000. or text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, the text line is 720-336-0897. Give us a call or send us a text. Um, and let me just finish up this thing I was saying about Ezekiel. The final thing about Ezekiel, where he gets the motivation to keep going, even in the face of hardship, and where he gets the strength to... Um, carry on and, and fulfill God's purpose for his life is finally that at the end of Ezekiel he gets this incredible vision of what is to come and how God is going to bring life out of death and one of the things that's really intriguing to me is that he has several visions right one of the visions he has is this very famous vision about how God is going to uh, you know there's this valley of dry bones and God calls him to prophesy over the valley of dry bones and the the dry bones come to life and God says that's a picture of how the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah will be revived after the exile and he will reunite the two kingdoms that were divided at one time. They will once again be a, a united nation uh, of Israel and he'll restore them to the land. Uh, but then he says something really interesting in chapter 47 and into chapter 48. 
uh, he describes this new temple that's going to be built. And we know this temple has not actually been built because the second temple, which was built like in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra and, and the post-exilic period and all that, um, that temple was smaller than what Ezekiel describes. And uh, there's one really interesting feature of that temple which has not yet ever existed. And that is this. He says in chapter 47 that there will be a river which will flow from under the rebuilt temple. And it will flow uh, starting from a trickle. But as it goes down towards the east, it will pick up momentum. It will become so deep that you could swim in it. And it will flow into the Dead Sea. Now, I'm going to Israel. It'll be my first time going to Israel. I'm going in a couple weeks. Um, our church, Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, is going together with a group from Calvary Brighton. So the two churches together. And um, we're going to be uh, co-teaching. You know, me and Pastor Paul are going to be co-teaching all the messages. But it'll be my first time actually seeing these places for the first time. I've, I've uh, read so much about them. But I know quite a bit about the Dead Sea. You know, I know that there are no, no fish uh, there's no plants that grow in the Dead Sea. It's because the water's so high in mineral and salt content, and it's just toxic water, really. It can actually kill you if you ingest uh, very much of it. In fact, uh, I read something recently that said that uh, people actually do die from uh, ingesting the water of the Dead Sea, even uh, tourists. So I'm going to be pretty careful when I go down there. But here's what it says. It says that this water from the temple will come from Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain. So uh, the water will flow out from under the temple on top of uh, Jerusalem. It will flow down into the valley and it will flow into the Dead Sea. And this living water, this river of living water will cause the Dead Sea to come to life. It says that there will be fish and people will spread their nets on the shores of the Dead Sea, which is incredible. It's something that's never happened in recorded history. And what's interesting is if you correlate Ezekiel chapter 47 with Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah talks about the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord. Uh, and what we can see is that what he's describing, we now know on this side of history, he's describing the return of Jesus. And he says that when Jesus returns uh, to Jerusalem, that there will be an earthquake. You know, Jerusalem actually sits on a fault line. We know that. And we know that there are aquifers under the city. That's how the people were able to have water up there and have, um, have water there on top of the uh, mountain there in Jerusalem. And so what essentially is he, or Zechariah describes, there will be an earthquake. And then he says in, in, I believe it's chapter 14, verse 8 of Zechariah, he says that in that day, a river of living water will flow in Jerusalem. Again, that's something that's never happened, and it totally correlates with what Ezekiel is describing of the rebuilt temple, and that there will be a river of living water that will flow in Jerusalem that will, Ezekiel tells us, it flows into the Dead Sea, and it will cause the Dead Sea to come to life. And then we can actually correlate that again with Revelation chapter 22 that tells us that from the throne of God there will come a river of living water in the new Jerusalem and that water will uh, give life and there will be trees and the, including the tree of life and the leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations, it says. And, uh, and just one last thing and then we'll go to a color is that you can correlate all these things with John chapter 7 where John, uh, where Jesus says on the, you know, he goes to the Feast of Tabernacles and he's up on top of the Temple Mount there. And Jesus says that he, uh, he says on the, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me 
and drink. And then he says, And whoever believes in me, out of his inmost being will flow, what? Rivers of living water. Jesus is standing in this place where one day he will stand again. And from where this river of living water will flow that will bring death into life. That which has been dead will come to life. And Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? That river of living water which is to come that Ezekiel told you about, that Zechariah told you about, that same river of living water, you can experience it now. You can experience it inside of you. If you believe in me and trust in me and cling to me and rely on me, you can have by the Holy Spirit that river of living water that will bring life into the dead places of, of your inmost being. Where there has been death, where there's been sin and corruption, the Holy Spirit, as you believe in Jesus, he said, will come in and this river of living water will bring life to those dead places inside of you and make you alive. Just such a wonderful, amazing picture. That's what gives us the motivation to go on, even in the face of hardships, this promise uh, that we have of now and for eternity, uh, God bringing life out of death. Let's go to our caller, Cassandra in Littleton, Colorado. Hi, Cassandra. Welcome to the program. Hello, how are you? Doing well. Um, I'm going through a chronologic Bible study, and okay. so right now it has me bouncing back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are what seems to be two inconsistencies that I came across in my reading today, and just wondering if you can help me work through those. Okay, sure. Uh, one of them is the comparison of Jesus before the council in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 24, where they asked Jesus um, whether or not he is the Messiah. Okay. And in Matthew, he says, you have said so. In Mark, he says, I am. And in Luke, he says, um, I tell you, you will. If I tell you, you will not believe. Mm -hmm. And if I ask, you will not listen. Yeah, okay, so um, the answer to that is that there, there are four different Gospels for a reason, and, um, and I can tell you about that in just a second if you want, but the idea of a, the reason why we have four different accounts of Jesus' life, these are different accounts based on different eyewitness accounts, but they also have different emphases. Um, but furthermore, they're, they're real accounts written by real people. And the other thing is that um, in a lot of these cases, it's not that we're dealing with inconsistencies so much as... Um, you know, anytime you tell a story, you are going to leave out certain details and you're going to include mm -hmm. certain details. And the reason you do that is because based on not just what you include, but what you leave out, that, that helps shape the story that you're trying to tell and the emphases that you have. And so what we have in the gospel accounts, too, is that there are several times where uh, it's not a case of was it this or was it that? But the case is, it was this and that. So just, just uh, as one gospel might say that Jesus said this, another says that he said that, uh, the question is, did Jesus answer uh, only one of these things? And one of these was conveyed to us uh, faithfully and the others were embellished? Or was it that perhaps Jesus said more than what's even recorded in any of them? And yet they only tell us uh, part of his answer because, again, if they, you know, John's gospel makes this very clear. It says that if everything that Jesus did and said were to be recorded for us, all the libraries on the earth wouldn't be able to contain it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I guess that would be my, my answer to you on that is that 
Okay. This isn't necessarily an inconsistency so much as it is, um, you know, different gospel writers, including different parts of what happened. But I would also tell you this, that none of the gospel writers, and, and this is by John's own admission, gives us the full details of everything that happened with Jesus um, in his in his life and everything that he said. Okay. Okay. Well, that is helpful. Um, I had heard before, which is kind of correlating with what you're saying, is that like in a court of law, um, if you had several witnesses lined up and all of their stories aligned perfectly, you'd be suspect. Right. Um, as opposed to is the majority of the story and the content of the story the same with minor details being altered. Gotcha. Hey, Cassandra, okay. I need to uh, either put you on hold or let you go. Uh, we're That's coming great. up thank on you. our break. All right. Thank you so much for calling in. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Yep, we'll be back in two minutes' time. You're listening to Calvary Live. Welcome back to Calvary Live. Give us a call at 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. The number to call is 303-690-3000. It's 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. Again, the text line is 720-336-0897. We have a couple text messages that we're going to go to. We have all open lines, so now is a great time for you to call in if you've been wanting to do that. We'd love to uh, hear from you and hopefully answer some of those questions. Great question from Cassandra just before the break about you know apparent Bible inconsistencies. Uh, so any other questions along those lines would be welcome. The number is 303-690-3000. Again, 303-690-3000. Let's go over to our text line. And um, we have a person who asked this question. Is it possible to reconcile a relationship with someone when it is damaged from your perspective because they have injured you and it has damaged your common relationships and yet they claim they have done no wrong. So, and it seems seems like there's a lot behind this question. I'm not I'm not sure of the exact uh, you know specifications of what's going on in your life or in this question. Here's a few insights I think I can help you with. One of them is this: I, I think there is a difference between um, forgiving someone and then you know d putting up having boundaries with somebody. I, I think that boundaries are healthy. And if there's uh, someone who's continually hurting you, then you should probably have some boundaries. On the other hand, um, it seems like um, what you're describing is something that this person has done in the past. And so what I would challenge you with is I would challenge you to ask yourself the question of whether you have truly forgiven this person. And, you know, forgiveness means that you are willing to absorb what that person did and then move on past it. Now, again, this isn't to say that uh, forgiveness is an excuse for allowing someone to continue uh, abusing you, for example. But it is saying this, that let's say someone has done something bad in the past, and yeah, it has injured you. Um, 
to forgive them means to say, I'm going to put that in the past. I'm not going to hold it over their head anymore. I'm not going to throw it in their face anymore. Uh, I'm going to truly put it to rest. And, and I'm going to let, let it be, let it, so, so to say, die with me. In other words, uh, when somebody sins, uh, somebody has to pay, right? That's, that's how things work. But when we forgive somebody, we're saying, I will take the payment for that in the sense of I will absorb that. I will absorb the pain that that caused me rather than making you suffer for it, for what you did to me. I will suffer for it and I will let it die with me. And so I would just encourage you to ask yourself, have you really done that? And it sounds like this person wants to have a relationship with you. It sounds like they're claiming, you say they claim that they haven't done anything wrong. Well, I think that's a different, but also very important issue. I think it's very important that, that we uh, have the humility and the ability to admit when we have done wrong and that we apologize when we've done wrong. We apologize for hurting people. And, you know, if that person doesn't want to uh, apologize, I don't think that that prevents you from forgiving them. Right? I don't think you need uh, them to admit that they did something wrong in order for you to forgive them. I think you can forgive them without them doing that. However, maybe it is a sign that this person uh, is not really ready to change their ways. And, and maybe there does need to be uh, some boundaries there in your relationship. So that would be my advice. Um, number one, forgive this person, really. And secondly, determine you know where is this person at and is this something where you can... Um, where you can move forward and reconcile. Are they willing to admit where they've been wrong and, and be humble? I think humility is one of the most important factors in any long-term relationship. There needs to be a, a willingness to admit when we've been wrong. But you ask the question, is it possible to reconcile a relationship? Uh, absolutely, it's possible. Um, and so I would encourage you to do that as much as, as it is uh, possible for you to you know, knowing where those boundaries need to be. But again, not knowing the situation in detail makes it very hard, but I, I hopefully, uh, hopefully those, those few words of advice can give you some direction. So thank you for that text message, and God bless you. Let's go to our next caller, Ella in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Ella. Hi. Welcome to the program. Hey, so thank you. My question, um, so I'm going to premarital counseling with my fiancé right now, and we came across the verse, I think it was in Ephesians, I don't really remember, but it said, husbands love your wives, for they are the weaker vessel, or something along those lines. And we just wanted to know what that meant. Yeah, so a few things um, on what that means. I'm just uh, looking up some notes I have on this. You bet. Yeah, so there there are two two big aspects in this. Uh, and by the way, that verse, it looks like it comes from First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what it says. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So in general, uh, I'll tell you one way in which uh, the wife is a weaker vessel is uh, physically, right? So women are generally mm -hmm. uh, physically uh, weaker um, than men, you know, just in the way that God's made us in muscle structure and all of those things. Although, of course, not the case. I've met some weak men. I've met some pretty sturdy ladies in my time, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but in general, um, the other thing is that he ties this to um, the woman being the one who um, was tempted to sin. And uh, he ties that there in First Peter to the woman being the one um, 
who is who was deceived by Satan. And so there's an uh, an insinuation there that women are perhaps uh, weaker when it comes to this area as well. Now, I don't know if that insinuation is necessarily there in the text, but it is correlated. So, mm-hmm. you know, just from a scriptural perspective, I, I'm sorry, that's actually in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, um, that it says that the woman was the one who was tempted. And so I think that those are the, the two areas where we would keep this in mind so that the wife, he is to deal with his wife as the weaker vessel in the sense of physical uh, strength and in the sense of understanding that it was the woman who was tempted, or sorry, deceived by Satan. Mm-hmm. The, man, the man's sin in that relationship uh, is interesting too because, you know, it was Adam who was ultimately held accountable even for his wife's sin. And the reason was, of course, you know, the woman was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived at all. Um, he knew exactly what he was getting himself into. And so Adam is the one who is, you know, historically and biblically held accountable for that. So. Hmm. Okay. That makes cool. sense. Thank you. Awesome. God bless you, Ella. Thanks for the call. Mm. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. The number to call is 303-690-3000. or text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, 720-336-0897. We have all open lines once again. We'd love to hear from you. 303-690-3000. In the meantime, let's go back over to our text messages. We have a person with a prayer request saying this. It says, I've lost my job. I'm struggling with uh, money. I took a a third shift job and I have another gig in the daytime. Also, I'm battling drug addiction. I struggle with having friends at church. I am in the most excellent way program. And uh, please pray for me and others struggling with addiction. Yeah, absolutely. I think that first of all, that's great that you're in the most excellent way program and that you're getting help. And my hope would be that as being part of that group that you would actually meet some people that you can be friends with at church. Uh, you know, one of the ways that I've found is best to make friends at church is for you to get involved in groups. Sometimes in the big setting of church, it can be hard to actually meet people. But the more that you're involved in groups, I think you're going to um, you're going to be able to meet some people in those groups. So continue with that. And let me absolutely pray for you uh, and those who are struggling with drug addiction. Heavenly Father, our heart goes out to this brother or sister who texted in, uh, just struggling with job, struggling with money. Lord, we pray for your provision in their life. We thank you that this person is uh, seeking you and that they've gotten, uh, they're getting into this place where they're seeking help. Lord, I pray that you'd meet them in that place where they're at. Lord, that you give them the strength to say no to drugs. Lord, that you give them the strength physically to overcome this drug addiction. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's listening right now uh, who is struggling with addiction of any kind. And Lord, I pray that truly they would be able to experience and walk in the freedom that you give them um, by your Spirit. Lord, I think of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 that says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let us not again be brought under the yoke of bondage. I think of... uh, the book of Romans that tells us that that sin enslaves us, but that, Lord, you have come to set us free and make us free indeed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would truly set these people free from these addictions and Lord, that they would experience the freedom of walking with you 
in the light of life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church taking your calls and texts on the air today. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. We have another question that's texted in while we're waiting for the calls to come in. Let's take this. It says this. How should I practically pray for those in authority when it comes to the U.S. government? How should I practically pray for those in authority when it comes to the U.S. government? It's a good question. Today's President's Day. And uh, I know that there are a lot of Christians who are uh, divided on this issue, uh, especially in the political climate that we're in today. How, one of the things that I would remind you of before I give you some concrete pointers is this. To remember that as Christians, we belong to a kingdom which is above all other kingdoms. It's a kingdom which is not of this world, but it is the kingdom which reigns over this in this world and the universe and which will reign forever. And our number one allegiance is to that kingdom. And here's the thing that happens when, um, when there are things in the kingdoms of this earth that align with the kingdom of heaven and its culture, the kingdom of God, then we should celebrate those things and we should affirm those things. Now when there's other things which don't align with the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God, no matter which political party they're done by, then it's our Christian duty to challenge those things. Now on the other hand, we're to pray for those in authority, whether uh, they are people we like or people we don't like, because they're in, in very important positions. And the Bible tells us in in Romans chapter 13, but also in, in many other places throughout the Bible. Uh, I know in Habakkuk, for example, we studied Habakkuk recently, and that the, one of the themes of Habakkuk is that God raises up leaders and, and takes down other leaders. And there's this interesting place there where God is, uh, Habakkuk is questioning God, and he's questioning God's justice. And he says, God, why are you letting, why are you letting these people be in charge who are leading our country in the way that they're doing it? And, uh, God's answer to Habakkuk is, Habakkuk, I am going to execute judgment and justice on the earth, but be patient because you, you, you don't see the whole picture yet. You don't see what I'm going to do in several years from now. And one of the things God told Habakkuk, he said, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. He said, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans or I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And he said, he's going to have them come and attack um, Judah, which did happen. And Habakkuk was like, well, now I'm even more confused than I was before. How could you raise up a more evil nation to judge a less evil nation? And God says, well, Habakkuk, trust me on this. I have a plan. And he actually tells Habakkuk what the plan is. He says, after this happens, I will bring justice on Babylon as well. And we know historically that happened as well. And my point with this is just to say this, that we trust that those who are in authority, God has brought them into authority for a purpose, and we may not be able to see that purpose in our time. It might be something that, that the whole picture comes together later on. And so one of the ways that I can tell you to practically pray for those in authority is to pray that God would use them according to his purpose, that he's allowed them to get into the positions they're in for so that God would use them for those purposes, but also that they would have wisdom. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the great verses on this subject is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, where Jeremiah is writing to the exiles who are going to Babylon. 
And he says this thing. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's interesting. You know, he says that to them, you know, pray for the city. And uh, I would just encourage you in that way. Uh, pray for those leaders. Pray for their welfare. Pray that they would have wisdom and that God would use them and direct them for the good of the place where you live. And um, yeah, so I hope that answers your question. But I think uh, today on President's Day, that's a great verse to be reminded of. That's First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, yes, thank you for that question, and God bless you. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. We have all open lines right now. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000, or text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, the text sign 7203 Three three six zero eight nine seven. Let's go back to our text line. We have a texter who says this: "I lost, I lost the love of my life to a physical relationship, and do I do want to change and show her I'm a new person?" Okay, so uh, let's pray for you, Heavenly Father. I pray for this person who's texted in, and uh, it seems that they are reaping some of the the rotten fruits of their bad choices. And Lord, we know that that's one of the ways that you teach us. It's one of the ways that you chastise us is by, and I mean that in a good way, Lord. That's one of the ways that you discipline us is by letting us experience uh, some of the natural consequences of our actions. And I pray for this person who's texted in. And Lord, I do pray um, that you would bring restoration into their life. But most of all, Lord, I pray that this event would cause them really to get on their knees and confess their sins to you and repent and turn back to you wholeheartedly. Sounds like there's been some sin in their life, Lord, and I pray that uh, they would repent of that sin, turn away from it, give their life wholeheartedly over to you. And whether this uh, person comes back into their life as a result or not, Lord, I pray that they would be fully and utterly satisfied in you and in love with you. And Lord, I pray that if beyond that you choose to do a work of restoration, that you would show that mercy and grace uh, to this brother or sister who is texted in. And so, Lord, we pray for them in Jesus' name that you would do a work of restoration and these things that have happened, Lord, you would use even these things for their good and for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for that text message. And God bless you. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. We've got about 12 minutes left in the show, and that's plenty of time for at least one or two more calls. So give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Looks like we had a caller who asked not to be on the air but had a question. This is Chris in Fort Collins. Ask the question, how do we pick the right verse to encourage a friend without picking a verse out of context? Well, Chris, I think that's a really good question because, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, I, I did a little research not long ago 
on uh, what are the most quoted and most shared Bible verses uh, from the Bible. I think there were some stats that were run from the Bible app. You know, they're able to get a lot of stats on like which verses are the most shared, highlighted, um, and all of these. And one of the things that I noticed looking at this list was that most of these verses were used out of context. In fact, I'm going to look up uh, a list right now. So uh, most of the verses were used out of context. You know, one of the one of the most famous things is you know I just quoted from Jeremiah chapter 29. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible is uh, Jeremiah 29:11, but in a way that verse is often used out of context. Um, it looks like one verse that is here's the number one verse that is used um, globally, not just in the U.S. That's shared globally. It says. Um, this is Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, I got to tell you, that's probably not taken out of context in the sense of, here's, here's two questions you want to ask. Number one, what was the meaning in the original context? And number two, what is the application for today? And I think like, and this is a case where we can say, okay, there was a definite meaning historically for the first hearers, and there's a principle involved in there. And that principle is indeed transferable to today. So I think that is a verse that you could use. Now your question, how do I pick a verse without using it out of context? I would say, number one, look at the context and really try to understand the context and then see if, you know, anytime you send a verse to encourage somebody, there is an implied application, right? And so, for example, with this verse where it says, do not fear for I am with you, the implied application is that if somebody sends me this verse, it's then trying to show me that God says in his word that I do not need to fear because God will be with me. He'll be my God and he'll strengthen me. Now, is that true? Is that principle true for me personally? Yes, it is. Um, so that would be my, my only advice to you is uh, look to the context, and one of the ways you can get context really easily is by reading the chapter before and maybe the chapter after. It's by reading that verse in the context, the chapter in which it is uh, located. And what you're trying to do is understand, okay, what is, how does this, what does this verse mean in its context? What did it mean to the original hearers? By the way, there are two technical terms for this, but they're not, they're not uh, too far out for you to understand because I, I think they're really good. Number one, this is called exegesis. Exegesis means that you are trying to expose the meaning of that verse in its original context. What did it mean to the original hearers? What does it mean in its context? Secondly, uh, you might uh, call this hermeneutics or application, right? So this is when we are saying that we're interpreting this verse and applying it to a particular situation. And that, in that case, you're saying, okay, what is the principle that is found in this text and how can I apply it to uh, this person or to today in general? So, Chris, I hope that gives you some kind of handles for how to do that. But I think, hey, Chris, that is a really good question and a really good desire because a lot of people, you know, they'll play Bible roulette and they will open the Bible up to uh, various places, put their finger on there and try to find a verse. And whether it's in context or not, they'll give it the implied meaning that they intend to have. And in that case, we're really not, um, we're really not getting the Bible to say what the Bible says, or we're not trying to see what the Bible says as much as we're, we're trying to make the Bible say something that we want to say. But it sounds better when it comes through a Bible verse, right? And I think, of course, the 
former of those is the better one to do. We want to be giving people the message of God's word and applying that to their lives rather than, uh, it's actually called eisegesis, is when I already think something and then I try to fit my thoughts into a Bible verse or I try to find a Bible verse that matches with what I already think and want to say anyway. So Chris, kudos to you for doing that and uh, thanks for the great question. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. We've probably got time for one more call. Six minutes left in the show. Give us a call. The number is 303-690-3000. 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. We had another question texted in in which somebody asked this. In John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Mary asked Jesus to do a miracle in order to save a wedding feast where they ran out of wine. How did Mary know to ask Jesus for help? And was she asking him for help? Did she know who he was and what he was there to do? And why are there no stories of Jesus' childhood except in the Gnostic Gospels? So I, I actually recently taught this section from John chapter 2 uh, for our Advent series about a month and a half ago. And uh, one of the things that you learn when you study the this section, John 2, Jesus' first miracle, is that this was actually Jesus' uh, first miracle, but it says there in the text that this miracle wasn't just a miracle, but it was a sign which revealed his glory. So a couple questions you asked there. I'll just go through them. Was Mary asking Jesus for help? I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think Mary is asking for Jesus' help, and we see that from two things in this narrative. The first is that Jesus appears frustrated to a degree with the request um, because she's pushing him to do something that he says, you know, he's not sure if he's ready to do, which is to reveal his glory. The second thing here is that Mary's instructions to the uh, servants are to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. So that shows us that Mary is asking for help and that Jesus is, is uh, giving her that help. Uh, then the question becomes, how did Mary know to ask Jesus for help? Did she know who he was and what he had come to do? And I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. Mary did know that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, there's this famous song, Mary, did you know? Um, but then, you know, she it, the song isn't really asking, Mary, did you know that Jesus would be the Messiah? It, it goes into all these details. Did you know that he would walk on water? Did you know all these things? It's it's a nice song. But the fact is, Mary did know. And, and of course she knew. And here's how we know. Because uh, all of the Gospels tell us, well, two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell us that an angel appeared to Mary. An angel appeared to Joseph. And... Um, they, uh, they came and they told her who Jesus would be, that he would be the Messiah. Remember, Mary, in response to this, sings her famous song, the Magnificat. And uh, this, remember that Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, when Mary comes, the baby in Elizabeth jumps for joy. And her husband, Zechariah, has uh, also a visitation from the Lord. You know, Joseph is told to name the baby Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. In other words, it's, it's very clear that this is um, speaking about the Messiah. Then don't forget, this is the woman who was visited by the shepherds uh, who, who also heard the good news 
uh, from the angels. This is the woman who was visited by the Magi from the east, and the star proclaimed the birth of the new king. This is the woman who, when she brought her baby into the temple to be dedicated, met Simeon and Anna in the temple who, who were waiting and who were shown by the Holy Spirit that this was the Messiah. And again, this is the woman who had to flee into the uh, wilderness in Egypt um, because Herod the Great wanted to kill her baby because Herod understood that this baby was the Messiah. So did Mary know who Jesus was and what he would do? Absolutely, without a doubt. And I know with my kids, as they're growing up, I tell them stories about things that happened you know, when, when we found out that they were on the way. And I wonder if Mary did that with Jesus too and says, you know, Jesus, you're, you're destined uh, for this. And one of the big questions that uh, is asked in theological discussions is, how did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? Did he innately know that? Like, because he was the Messiah, did he just know it already without having to learn it? Or was it something that was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit? Uh, I think it could be both, and I think it could also include the fact that Mary and Joseph told him as he was growing up, Jesus, we know that you're the Messiah. We had these experiences, and they told him all about that. And so finally, the last question, why are there no stories of Jesus' childhood except in the Gnostic Gospels? And the reference here, of course, is to the Gospel of Thomas, which uh, purports to tell stories of Jesus doing miracles like healing birds when he was a baby. Uh, it says very clearly, actually, in John 2, 2, 11, that this was the very first of Jesus' miracles, that when he revealed his glory, uh, when he made the water into wine. My guess is the reason there isn't more written about Jesus' childhood is because there wasn't much to talk about. He spent his first several years in Egypt, and then at age 12, of course, his parents noticed that he had a desire to know the Father and to study the Scriptures. But beyond that, uh, they would have already known he was the Messiah, but he didn't do anything uh, as the Messiah until his baptism at age 30. Thank you for that question. God bless you. This has been uh, Calvary Live. My name is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Have a great evening and God bless you. You've been listening to Calvary Live. Tune in next time for prayer and God's word.